This is Misdemeanor and Misconduct, the podcast. Hi, yes, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Misdemeanor and Misconduct. Or I guess just one or the other because it's me, Kennedy, still alone. People have asked us before which one we are, misdemeanor or misconduct. In fact, I believe when Jenna was recognized, one of the times she was recognized, which has never happened to me, so I'm extremely jealous, uh, they asked her which one she was. And you'll all be shocked and appalled to find out that we have never figured that out because like all things with this podcast, we are just making bullshit up as we go. I prefer misdemeanor, so I'm going to claim it while she's gone and she can't fight me for it. Hope everybody is doing well, uh, still socially distancing, still isolating in these end times. I have noticed that when I go out into public now, since the province is reopening a little bit, that people are being a lot more lax, which is the opposite of what should be happening. If we are going to be opening up things, we should be taking more precautions. So if you don't already have a mask, get one. I was one of, I would say, a handful of people in the very busy grocery store yesterday wearing one. People were not following the lines. They were not distancing. It was making me a little bit anxious. So just do your part, please. If not for yourself, for everybody else, I beg of you. That's it. That's all. This is an exciting one. I am certain that I have heard this story before or something like it, but I have looked through all of the podcasts that I consistently listen to and I can't find anyone who's done it unless I'm just completely missing it, which is absolutely plausible. That's actually extremely likely because Lord knows my skills of observation are subpar at best. The case we're looking at today has been talked about in a number of ways. It's been compared to Gone Girl. It's been written about as a true story with one of the most insane plot twists. It's been called a sophisticated cybercrime. In my opinion, it is none of those things. It is a story of abuse, very shoddy and questionable police investigation, and it was fueled by the press with very sexist stereotypes to be portrayed as a catfight between women involved in this scandalous love triangle. Michelle Hadley, who is the woman at the center of this case, I think she put it best when she said, the crazy ex, the crazy new wife, all those crazy girls getting emotional, but there's absolutely no doubt in my mind about who did this, and there never has been. I would like to credit Jessica Testa and her BuzzFeed News article that was largely where I took my information from, as well as R. Scott Moxley from the OC Weekly. Those were the two articles that I took the most of my information from. In the summer of 2016, Michelle Hadley arrived home from a date, a good date, she said, and parked on her quiet cul-de-sac in Ontario, California, to find police waiting for her. There in her driveway, they had warrants to search her phone, tablet, and laptop. She handed over the devices and quickly found herself in the back seat of an unmarked cop car on the way to the Anaheim detention facility. The 29-year-old grad student sat freezing in her sleeveless black dress. She shivered and cried, waiting for police to realize that they had made some sort of big mistake. There was no way she could have been guilty of the vile list of sex crimes that she was being accused of. But that night, while she claimed her innocence, it became clear that no one believed that she was the victim of a setup and it would take months for the truth to surface. The first in a list of emails allegedly sent from Michelle to a woman named Angela Diaz on May 29th read, 
I hope you are scared to death tomorrow. Be prepared. Don't sleep. We will steal your child and we will watch as it dies. You are a piece of shit and I hope to God you burn for what you've done to us. On May 31st. You deserve nothing but a life of lonely torture. I have ways to hurt you. There's no place you will be safe anymore. On June 1st. You might be beautiful, you might be the one he married, but you are still a sinner and must be punished. I will make sure you're reminded of your place by force. On June 2nd. I know you're leaving work. I watch as you walk. Let's play a game. The emails carried on for weeks, all seeming to come from different email addresses belonging to Michelle Hadley. Angela Diaz, the recipient of these emails, was a pregnant 31-year-old newlywed. Her husband was Ian Diaz, a deputy U.S. marshal, and Michelle Hadley's ex-fiancé. Ian and Michelle had met in late 2013. She was 26 years old and recently divorced from her high school sweetheart. She met Ian on a dating app. He was a 35-year-old, tall, lanky, and sturdy, who Michelle found attentive and sweet. She was a bookish brunette with big eyes who'd so far led a safe, quiet life. When Ian told her that he loved her on their second date, she was flattered and excited. She didn't find it strange. He was older. He probably just knew what he wanted. By the spring of 2014, they were living together. But that sort of intense nature would morph into a controlling one fairly early on. He wanted her to be sexier, to wear crop tops and nails and have her belly button pierced. He pressured her to leave her job for a marketing position at his favorite place, also the place he used to work, Disneyland. To do so, she'd have to take a $20,000 pay cut, and in retrospect, she believes, to be under the watchful eye of Ian's ex-co-workers. She also came to believe that he was probably tracking her. Anytime she drove a few miles outside of the zone of her home, her work, or her school, her phone was immediately ringing. Looking back, Michelle can see the red flags, but at the time, she just wanted to make him happy. She was afraid he'd leave if she didn't. So when he proposed with a big diamond ring in December 2014, she was quick to say yes. By her own standards, she didn't just love him. She was addicted to him. It's what allowed her to do things she wouldn't have otherwise. For months, Ian asked her to have sex with another man while he watched. She refused and refused until threatening to break up with him for continuing to ask. He told her she was overreacting, and of course then, he continued to ask. One Valentine's Day, she finally gave in. She took an over-the-counter nighttime cold medicine and a few shots of fireball before allowing Ian to film her having sex with a stranger that he'd found on Craigslist. The next morning, sick with regret, she begged him to destroy the video. He refused and told her, no one put a gun to your head. In the summer of 2015, Ian and Michelle moved into a brand new two-story condo. This is where the relationship took its overwhelmingly sour and toxic turn. He became more paranoid and more physically threatening. Michelle's eventual lawsuit would cite angry tirades and rants for hours on end. She recalls times he pulled over on busy highways to demand she get out, and afterward throwing her onto their bed and holding her there while she tried to get away. Eventually, she emailed her sister in New York to give her a glimpse into what was happening. She said she needed a crazy check, someone from the outside to tell her whether or not there really was something wrong with the relationship. By the end of the summer, the relationship was over. Ian took back the ring with accusations that Michelle was cheating, and she fit as much as she could into her Volkswagen and drove away. But of course, with shared property, things weren't over, and the end of the relationship became the beginning of a year-long battle over the condo. Michelle was still paying half of the mortgage while Ian stayed in the house, and their email exchanges to work things out became more and more bitter. At her angriest, Michelle said she blacked out. In her words, you're in your own body, but your mind is somewhere else. 
On September 10th, 2015, she sent this email. Your sins are many, including defiling me and my family with your wicked and evil sexual acts, your financial coercion, your irresponsibility, your gluttony, your greed, your lust, your sloth, your wrath, your envy, and most of all, your pride. I will bring the full force of the law and the word of God against you to judge you. She was angry, but Michelle was mostly afraid. She was convinced he was using his connections within the law to track and intimidate her. She could remember seeing unmarked vehicles identical to Ian's at many of the places she spent time. She told security officers at her school and work that she was afraid. He was banned from the campus, and eventually, by late 2015, things had been settled by Ian and Michelle and the property lawyers they hired, and he assumed full payment of the condo. It may have seemed like things were finally coming to an end, but what Michelle didn't know was that she was now on police radar. Throughout the grueling year-long property process, Ian had reported her emails and his being banned from the school to the police department. He also filed for a restraining order, citing emotional instability and history of fits of rage, though it was eventually dismissed by a judge. In the early months of 2016, Michelle was starting over. She was renting a small apartment near her school, furnishing it and living on a tight budget. When she received some financial paperwork, it was the first time she saw the unfamiliar name of Angela Diaz. She'd see it again a few weeks later, on June 6, this time on a restraining order. Michelle was shocked. How could Angela take out a restraining order against her if she'd never even met the woman? But by this point, she did know who she was. She was Angela Connell, now Angela Diaz, and Ian's wife. Ian and Angela had met online in January of 2016, and a month later, they were married, and Angela, who was pregnant, had moved into the condo. When Michelle arrived to a hearing on June 17th regarding the restraining order, she saw her ex-fiancé's new wife for the first time. She was with Ian, surrounded by friends and family who stood staring and laughing. Angela confidently strode over and handed her a stack of papers, printouts of wildly threatening emails, each signed with Michelle's name. Here you go, Angela said, speaking to Michelle for the first and only time. She was horrified by the idea of this ending up on her record. She'd lived her life quietly and safely and always avoided trouble. But she had no idea what was yet to come. In the weeks before the hearing, Michelle thought something strange might be happening with her accounts. A Google email informed her that a Gmail account under her name was being shut down. Then an automated message from Microsoft alerting her that her primary email was being used as the recovery contact for a number of new Outlook addresses, none of which were started by Michelle. On June 21st, a few days after the restraining order hearing, Michelle received an email from Craigslist asking her to verify that she'd created an ad called Gang Rape Fantasy. She reported the ad but never heard anything back. A week prior, another ad had surfaced, with replies linked to someone using the name Lilith Hadley. The ad was seeking women who were interested in rape fantasies, and the reply listed Ian and Angela's address with a note reading, If you're free tonight, come find me. Force me into my house and take me down. On June 24th, three days after Michelle was asked to verify the gang rape ad, Angela Diaz called police to report that she'd been attacked. A man had come into the garage of their condo and tried to rape her. They found her crying with a reddened neck and a ripped shirt. A few hours later, Michelle was arrested at her home after her date. That night, as Michelle sat in jail, the email stopped. Her family posted her $10,000 bail the next morning, and the emails continued. An endless stream of ads on Craigslist inviting strange men to the condo to fulfill a fantasy. On July 13th, Angela called police again to report a strange teen lurking around their home. 
The next day, Michelle was arrested again while doing homework at her parents' office. This time, they couldn't afford the bail of $1 million, not if they were also going to hire a good lawyer, and they'd need to. For the next three months, Michelle would stay in jail. We believe we have a true public safety issue, the Orange County District Attorney's Office would later say to explain the arrest. If Michelle Hadley is not arrested, then Angela Diaz will eventually be raped or killed. Until this point, Michelle described herself as a super private super nerd. She grew up in a strict, conservative home and was never the type to seek out the spotlight. Her life was simple, straightforward, on track. Nothing bad had ever really happened to her. She based her life around work, clocking 70 hours a week. She paid her bills on time, and any criminal record was non-existent. But none of this was seen as helpful in Michelle's case, not in the eyes of detectives. Who, if you ask me, or almost anyone, were doing a suspiciously horrible job. Before her arrest, Michelle had called police four times to report that she believed someone, who she guessed was likely Ian, was impersonating her online. She also contacted the FBI and the Department of Justice, wanting them to know her ex was trying to intimidate her into signing over their shared property. But nobody returned her calls or messages, and it seems that no one ever did the work to truly confirm Michelle was sending any threats. Tracing emails back to their sender is actually a fairly simple and straightforward process. An email is tied to the IP address of the computer it was sent from. IP addresses show that many of the emails Angela received were sent from her condo. Some were sent during periods in which Michelle had no access to internet or her devices, which were seized by police and never returned. Not just that, but surveillance cameras at the entrance of the condo's garage show no activity during the time Angela was claiming to have been attacked. As the lawsuit says, this was not some sort of sophisticated cybercrime. The Diaz's attempts at impersonation were actually quite sloppy, and if investigators had bothered to look, it all would have been easy to see. But what police relied on were the tones of the unnerving emails written with biblical revenge threats that sounded very similar to those emails legitimately written by Michelle and reported by Ian during the property disputes. For Michelle's parents, building a case on the outside wasn't difficult. Evidence clearly showed emails were sent during periods that she couldn't have been active, school records to show she'd been in class, and medical records stating she'd been hospitalized for a period. Whether or not this actually swayed the investigation is hard to say, because once she was released, she was told that it was because of Ian. On September 30th, 2016, Ian arranged to speak with a detective assigned to the case. Court records say he then told them he believed his wife had framed Michelle. And the lies continued to come out. He told police that the miscarriage Angela claimed to have suffered as a result of Michelle's torture was not that. It was an abortion he'd asked her to have after discovering she was unsure who the father was. Her next pregnancy was also a lie. She'd bought fake sonograms and doctored pregnancy tests to fool him. He left her when he found out. The investigation would later find she'd also faked jobs, checks, doctor's notes, and cancer. The week after Ian came forward, Michelle was released. Attention was shifted to Angela, and even though the story was being covered nationally, police requested Michelle not speak publicly about what had happened or her relationship to Ian. Michelle's lawsuit would later claim that the goal in asking for her silence was to cover up their own complicity. Everyone wanted to silence me, and that's the worst thing as a victim, Michelle said. How can I heal when the true story is not even out there, and people are asking questions about the love triangle? She wanted to be polite but she also wanted to yell that there was no love triangle. After three months, fed up with waiting and with an uncomfortable ankle monitor, 
she went to prosecutors to tell them that if they didn't soon announce her innocence, she'd go to the media. On January 6, 2017, Angela was arrested, and three days later, Michelle was exonerated. When the arrest went public, it was painted as the result of painstaking investigative research that ultimately proved the emails had come from Angela's condo, her father's home, and her cell phone. As for Ian, after exposing his wife, he was never questioned again. In articles, he was referred to as John Doe, as we know, typically reserved for victims, and his personal devices were never turned over to police. A detective would testify that Ian said he'd given his cell phone to his mother. Investigators said that the use of a VPN, which would block the IP addresses, had been used and made it impossible for them to track the emails early on, even though a lawsuit claims that three days prior to Michelle's arrest, a warrant showed that at least 21 of the emails received so far had come from Ian and Angela's condo. On October 17, 2017, Angela pled guilty to 10 felony charges. Michelle had been faced with a maximum sentence of life in prison. Angela struck a deal and was given five years. Angela's criminal defense attorney told Dateline, The failure to investigate adequately the role of Ian Diaz in this is a serious concern. Michelle's feelings on it are complicated. She knows that what Angela did was an evil thing. But after her brief incarceration, she believes that prison is for the baddest of the bad. When asked if she didn't think Angela met those qualifications, she said, I don't think so. He does. To me, her going to jail isn't true justice. Since her release, Michelle left California and found a good job in her field in New York. She's still finding her way out of debt from unpaid bills during her incarceration, and talks of money she may receive from a lawsuit have been fairly quiet. But what Michelle said she really wants is to use the experience of her awakening to the justice system's cruelty and her privilege in being exonerated to do something about the, quote, blue wall of silence. She likes to say she wouldn't wish incarceration on her worst enemy. She was strip-searched, confined to her cell 23 hours a day, and allegedly denied access at various times to toilet paper, sanitary products, and contact lenses. When she was assigned a cellmate, she got a kindly, chatty grandmother being held on child kidnapping charges. She was 85 years old, black, and hard of hearing. The county jail exposed Michelle to the criminal justice system's flaws and how much worse it was for women who weren't white or young or healthy. She said her cellmate suffered taunts and abuse from deputies, and helping her avoid the guards gave Michelle a sense of purpose. After she was released, she convinced her parents to help her cellmate pay for an attorney. As a family, they lost the faith they once had in the justice system, a faith she said she realized was a luxury of being born middle class and white. She tries to look at her experience positively, explaining that it made her stronger, more resilient, and gave her depth and maturity. But she also realizes that it made her cynic with trust issues. She wonders how you can connect with other people after being so betrayed. She questions if she'll ever get back the nice, optimistic person she was. It's like she's still in there, but now there's another part of me saying, careful, careful, because people are dangerous, she said. The world is dangerous. And that is the story of the wrongful incarceration of Michelle Hadley and the complicated case with um, Angela and Ian Diaz. I find this story to be fascinating. It is one of the more interesting ones I've read in a long time. And though it falls outside of Canada, I knew that I really, really wanted to do it. I hope that everybody enjoyed this story. Like I said, there's some really wonderfully written articles that you can... Um, 
that you can take a look at. There's not a ton more um, details out there, but there is a lot of speculation and a lot of dialogue about who was really the, the person at the basis of this, whether it was Angela or whether it was Ian. That's not something that I have formed an entire opinion on aside to think that his involvement was absolutely much bigger than what it was portrayed as. It was a bit of a short one this week, but it was also kind of a banger. If you guys have any suggestions for stories you'd like to hear or any feedback, criticism, comments, questions, anything that you have to say, please send us a message on our social medias, which is Miss and Miss Podcast or Misdemeanor and Misconduct across most platforms. You can also reach me personally at kcath23 on Twitter or at k underscore Catherine on Instagram. Thanks so much for listening and I will see you next week. Goodbye. Have a great evening.